Welcome, listeners, to episode 55 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sitman, your podcast co-host. I'm here with my friend, Sam Etherbell. Hi, Matt. Hey, Sam. How are you doing? Well, I don't think either of us are in tip-top shape. I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm recovering from a, a terrible stomach bug that went through my household. And you, as listeners might be able to hear, have a bit of a nasty cold. Yeah. Neither Sam and I are in fighting shape. <laughs> no. But uh, that's all right, because uh, we have an episode to share with you. It's one I had a lot of fun recording. We had an amazing guest, Sarah Weinman, from the New York Times, uh, who joined us to talk about her book, Scoundrel. How a convicted murderer persuaded the women who loved him, the conservative establishment, and the courts to set him free. And by the conservative establishment, she really means someone on the podcast we've talked about a lot, William F. Buckley Jr. And Sam, you wrote about this book and the the Buckley-Edgar Smith saga just a few weeks ago. Yeah. For The New Republic, I wrote a review of Sarah's book. She's a really interesting writer who writes a lot about uh, true crime and sort of the history of true crime. And uh, she also wrote a book called The Real Lolita about the true crime story, sort of supposedly underlying Nabokov's book. But this story of Bill Buckley and Edgar Smith is so fascinating. I did not know it when I read this book. I may be vaguely aware of it, but this is a story about Bill Buckley befriending a convicted murderer who is on death row, basically because he found out that this guy liked National Review. He became a very close (laughs) confidant, and Edgar became a sort of literary protege to Buckley. And then Buckley helped him get free, helped him get off death row and be let out back into the public. And that was a terrible mistake, as you will find out from listening to this conversation, or if you read my piece or or Sarah's book. But it is a very interesting story and lets us get into some of, a lot of the contradictions about the character of William F. Buckley, about the nature of the conservative movement in the 60s and the 70s. How could it be that a movement that was so dedicated to punitive policing, uh, carceral policy, uh, to capital punishment, how could it be that the leader of that movement in Bill Buckley could have felt such sympathy for this particular convicted murderer on death row. And uh, getting into that is very productive. And Sarah was a great guest to guide us through this very strange tale. Yeah, Yes, she was a lot of fun. And as Sam mentioned, this was a story I really didn't know much about. Even though I'd read a lot about Buckley, this just kind of was not on my radar screen. And Sarah's book is just a, a, a marvel of archival research. It reads extremely well. And we had a lot of fun talking about it with her. So why don't we, uh, you know, not delay and just handle some housekeeping items before we turn to that conversation. As always, we're grateful to our partners at Descent for sponsoring the podcast for $10 a month. If you subscribe on patreon.com slash know your enemy, you can get access to all of our bonus episodes and the Descent digital subscription for $5 a month. If you subscribe, you can just get the bonus episodes. So please consider doing that. Yep. And as always, we want to thank Jesse Brenneman, our intrepid producer, and Will Epstein, who provides the music for the podcast. Rate and review us if you so please. Say nice things about us. Other than that, I think we should turn to this great conversation with Sarah Weinman. Enjoy. All right, well, let's get started. Uh, Sarah Weidman, welcome to Know Your Enemy. Thank you both so much for having me. Well, we're really excited for this. We're here to talk about your book, 
scoundrel, how a convicted murderer persuaded the women who loved him, the conservative establishment, and the courts to set him free. So a lot to unpack there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And one of the occasions for this is that I wrote about Sarah's book for The New Republic. I thought it was an incredible book. And this is a story that involves a favorite character on Know Your Enemy, that is William F. Buckley Jr., And I will just say that writing about Sarah's book, I became completely obsessed with this story. And I think that anybody who reads her book will have that experience. So I'm so happy that we have Sarah here to talk about it and talk about all the stuff that you found out that didn't make it into the book about Bill Buckley and this very strange, this very strange episode in his life and the lives of many people who were very badly affected by it. And yeah, we'll we'll sort of take it from there. I mean, not only is it a strange episode in his life, but it's a strange episode that curiously few people either know about, or if they did know about it, they were reticent about Mm. speaking about it. And then when they did speak about it, it would be in this way that I think they couldn't quite grasp entirely. And maybe that's due to WFB just really compartmentalizing who he felt comfortable talking about it with, mm-hmm. as opposed to the vast majority of people in his obit whom he would not share details, especially after the fact. Yeah. Well, Sarah, uh, before we dive into the particulars of this case, why don't you just tell us how you came to write this book? Because it's part crime thriller, but it's it's also the letters you sifted through, the very acute psychological diagnoses of these characters. There's just It's a really rich book, and I was just wondering what your entry point was into it. I think, strangely enough, my entry point was the much better known story of Norman Mailer and his advocacy (laughs) and involvement with the prisoner, Jack Henry Abbott, which not only was much better known, but somehow just got a lot more media attention. And it was certainly a story that I knew about through most of my adult life. Mm -hmm. Just Norman Mailer had that sense. He just permeated the culture and was in the literary world in such a concerted way that even now it's hard to sort of get rid of the yoke that he's put upon it. (laughs) So I had just finished writing the magazine piece that would eventually become my first book, The Real Lolita. And I was casting Mm -hmm. about for what to do next. And I think invariably so many of my book or magazine or feature ideas come from late night internet rabbit holes. Uh (laughs) And somehow in looking up Mailer and Abbott again, I saw some reference to William F. Buckley and his advocacy for this convicted murderer on death row named Edgar Smith. And I thought, why don't we know more about this? And the initial digging that I did suggested that this was an even worse story, Mm. that it was even more horrible because in 1957, Edgar Smith, who was 23 at the time, was convicted and sentenced to death for the murder of 15-year-old Victoria Zielinski, a teenager whom he knew to some degree not super well, but small town, Bergen County, New Jersey. She had gone out on dates with at least one of his friends, one of whom would become the alternate suspect that he would pin Mm -hmm. his bid for freedom on, essentially saying that this guy did it, I didn't do it, you should let me out, because clearly this is a miscarriage of justice. In any case... I did some digging. I started on what I thought was going to be the follow-up magazine piece and quickly came to a few realizations. Number one, this was already going to be too big a story. I think I was estimating that magazine piece at being 30,000 words, which if you're going to do that, you might as well just write a book. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) And 
it was late 2014. So at that point, I did not yet have access to Buckley's archives, which are at the Sterling Library at Yale University. I did, however, at that point, start corresponding a little bit with Edgar. It became clear even in those early stages of research that corresponding with him was not going to be that fruitful Hmm. because already what I knew of the story. So Edgar is tried, convicted, and sentenced to death. And he immediately launches into this campaign to live, to do whatever it took not to be executed, to convince people of his innocence. And within a few years of his conviction, he had managed to win several stays of execution, including one in 1958 that was within half an hour of the actual time. So, I mean, it really was like a race against the clock idea that was going Mm -hmm. on here. And it was right around the time when his first wife finally left him, married someone else, and took their daughter to Colorado. He is newly divorced, and he's in this campaign to better himself, and he's taking college classes, and he's reading whatever he can get his hands on. And then he does this interview with someone who had long been in in his camp, who had been his high school gym teacher at one point, but was now (laughs) a PR guy slash columnist at one of the local papers. He does this interview, and he mentions that there had been a prison chaplain or a warden, the story would change periodically. But the gist was someone at the prison had brought copies of National Review and he had access to it. And now that person had been moved. So he no longer did. And that mention of National Review got the attention of William F. Buckley (laughs) and also a younger staffer at NR named Donald G.M. Cox who later became a prominent investment analyst. But at the time, he was an ex-lawyer from Canada who had moved to New York and was working at NR. So Cox initially did a piece for the magazine about Edgar that ran in October of 63, by which point Buckley and Edgar were corresponding, but it was mostly business stuff, legal stuff. The correspondence between them really didn't start to get moving until after that piece had run. And by 64 going into 65, it really had cemented into at least what Buckley believed was a genuine friendship Mm. to the point where he writes a piece for Esquire magazine, quoting liberally from Edgar's correspondence, essentially making the case that Edgar, if he wasn't innocent of killing Vicky Zielinski, then at the very least, he deserved a new trial because the confession though it was unsigned, was pretty damning, and it maybe was coerced. Right. And there was all mm-hmm. this other circumstantial evidence that could be picked apart, except if you actually look at it, it's pretty above board. But no matter, enough people paid attention because it was Buckley. It yeah. was Esquire. It was a long piece. And at the very end, you could donate money to the Edgar Smith Defense Fund. Right. <laughs> and of course, by 65, this is just one of many, many things that Buckley's doing. He's running for mayor of New York City. Yes. And yet he still has time to work on this, which actually kind of astonished me. Like, really, this is still part of your orbit, even as you're doing this quixotic campaign and getting far more of the percentage of voters than you ever expected. Yes. Meanwhile, you are also legitimately advocating to free someone from death row because you believe in it. I did have one one small point, Sarah, because I jotted this down when I was reading your book, which is that it was supposedly the prison chaplain who was the National Review reader. Yeah, this went through so much back and forth with my wonderful fact checker, Rosemary Ho. <laughs> yeah. Buckley told it one way, 
Edgar told it several ways. And in fact, after the book, Galley, I think had been published, but it had not gone to, to full press. I found this radio interview that he did with Studs Terkel in 1973, which was promoting one of Edgar's last books, the nonfiction book. This is Buckley was being interviewed by Terkel. No, Edgar Smith was being interviewed by Studs Terkel. So oh, wow. mm-hmm. I'm getting ahead of myself, but by yeah. this point, you know, spoiler-ish, um, <laughs> Edgar does in fact get freed and is a little bit of a literary celebrity for a while. So he's giving this interview to Studs Terkel about his current book. And he mentions the story again and essentially says, oh yeah, that was kind of bullshit. I never actually read National Review. It was just the one that happened to be around. And I mentioned in Scoundrel too that he makes a joke, oh, it could have been the New Republic. Yes. And how different would that have been? <laughs> and indeed, how different would that have been? <laughs> My editor at TNR was very eager to include that quote. In, God bless in, Laura. In, <laughs> yeah, you know Laura, Laura Marsh. Yes, I do. Uh, she was she, like, I put that in a draft and she's like, oh my God, this is amazing. Because <laughs> he says something <laughs> like, I wonder if they would have been as kind to me if I had ended up becoming friendly with the editors at TNR instead of National Review. I mean, in fairness, that was not a rabbit hole I particularly wanted to fall down because it just felt like, yes, I, I'm not going to do a counterfactual. There's already so much to work with here. <laughs> yes. So, so it's interesting. I think it's notable that when Buckley tells the story, he not only says chaplain, he says Catholic prison chaplain, <laughs> which for Buckley and his Catholicism and maybe in this whole, in the stew here is some... Usually it seems unstated concept of mercy, but regardless of what is true, the fact that Buckley's ideal way of telling the story, at least when he tells it for the first time in Esquire, is the Catholic prison chaplain was a reader of National Review. Yeah, that's why it caught my eye for precisely that reason. But Sarah, that kind of raises a question which had been kind of bouncing around my head. If it was bullshit, meaning Edgar Smith was not reading National Review, was this like a machination of his? How did that end up in the story? Was there a point to it? Did he think it would elicit this kind of response? Or was it just kind of a random insertion into the article and it just kind of unexpectedly went from there? Yeah, I think it really was akin to that whole butterfly effect that (laughs) Bob Curley, who was the writer slash PR guy slash high school gym teacher in question, I think he just included it. Maybe he heard it. Maybe Mm -hmm. Edgar just said it in passing Maybe they mentioned a bunch of different magazines, and this is the one that stuck. Mm-hmm. Maybe Curly was paying attention to NR because he read it. I mean, sure. the, it, it, I mean, this was at a point where it wasn't that old, but it had already garnered some controversy, and certainly it was mm-hmm. getting more embedded in cultural consciousness and certainly in right-wing circles and oppositional circles. And I believe this is around the time when Buckley versus the Birchers was really kicking into high gear. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there was a lot of stuff happening, but it, Buckley himself was not the gigantic cultural figure that he would become later in the decade. Now, it's it's true, Sarah. This is, you know, for listeners, some context. For Buckley, this was pre-run for mayor, pre-firing line, pre-fight with Gore Vidal on national television. It was a kind of earlier phase of Buckley's life where he might not have been quite as famous. Although it overlaps with every instance that does make Buckley famous and all, yes. all of these things are happening <laughs> mm-hmm. as Buckley's own rise to prominence is also happening. So there's this commensurate yes. parallel thing where as Buckley becomes more prominent, Edgar Smith also becomes more prominent. Yes. And it's like the symbiotic, dare we say, parasitic thing that's happening. But eventually, of course, 
they seem to both get what they want out of hmm. it, which is that Edgar is freed. So he's happy about that. Buckley's happy about that because his own advocacy and his own belief that I still think was genuine the whole time. I don't think he went into it with, quote, bad faith. I think he really legitimately thought that there was something amiss with how Edgar was treated by the criminal justice system and went further that he didn't think Edgar had done it, that Mm -hmm. he didn't think Edgar was a murderer. And we can infer all the reasons why. I think Donald Cox, in the line that I quoted in the introduction of the book, essentially saying, we never thought that someone who could write so well could be a savage killer. He also says someone who would read National Review, right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, that's one of the great lines from your book is just, if you want the simplest explanation, these guys just (laughs) think National Review readers are all God's gift to man. So they can't possibly be savage killers. There's also kind of, I was thinking about this when you were talking about why Edgar might have chosen to name National Review as something that he's reading. Because as you mentioned, he's kind of in this sort of self-education moment, right? Where he's trying to improve himself and improve his image and sort of present as this more like learned type person. And I think that National Review might have had some of that cachet. And indeed, it seems throughout that for Buckley, this kind of quality of literariness and learnedness and sophistication, as much as like the legal machinations, it seems is what makes it so implausible that Edgar could be a killer. A sophisticated reader and thinker and with insights into the human condition couldn't possibly be also a murderer. And someone who at least had contorted the way that he wrote to align with how Buckley himself wrote. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I mean, having read a lot of Buckley's letters, he made a point that he would be laconic. And he, he defined laconic essentially as being, I want to be as succinct as possible in my letters. Most of them never exceeded a few lines on one page. I always joke that if a Buckley letter got to page two, that was some real loggeria on his part. <laughs> but I think it's just because he was writing to so many people. He yes. was filing two columns a week. He was overseeing the magazine. He was doing constant public speaking tours. I'm actually curious because I came to the conclusion while working on Scoundrel that Buckley felt like someone who fit the parameters of someone with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And I wondered what you guys thought of that. Hmm. Well, Sarah, I can say this. In Chris Buckley's memoir, Losing Mom and Pup, I've thought about Buckley for years, but I did not know, as Chris uh, details in that book, that he was, in fact, addicted to Adderall and Ritalin. Yes. And so I I don't know how that fits into an answer to your question, but I think it makes it more plausible that Buckley did have something like that going on. I mean, certainly the way that he would only do stuff that interested him, he got bored easily, he'd have to Mm -hmm. shift between tasks. There's just a way that his brain Mm -hmm. seemed to work, at least as presented to the outside world. That isn't necessarily how people who don't have ADHD react. And I think it's just, I think I was more cognizant of that because there are several people in my life who have ADHD and I understand at a very visceral level how their brains work. Yeah, And so I don't want to be an armchair psychiatrist here, but there's a lot of internal consistencies here that I think are worth uh, investigating. So a line from Gary Wills that I quote in my review of your book, um, where he's remembering Buckley not long after he dies, he said, he remind me of one of Wodehouse Blythe young men, P. Smith, yes, (laughs) or Piccadilly Jim, who act forever on impulse. He wrote rapidly 
because he was quickly bored. His gifts were facility, flash, and charm, not depth or prolonged wrestling with the problem. So that's all in keeping with your theory about his attention deficits. Um, I mean, the, the other thing I remember, uh, Matt and I have talked about before, I, I don't remember if this was, I think it's something that Wills wrote about at various times, about how Buckley would write his column with you in the room. Yeah. His friends, if it was Wills visiting or somebody else, he would want them to stay in the room and he would talk and write and smoke, which is just like, baffling to me because like I can't write unless there's nobody around and it's quiet but in terms of like just that attention which just flashes from thing to thing and his brain moves very very fast but it's never wrestling deeply with a problem over a long period Mm -hmm. of time that all fits yeah and I mean obviously just the way that he would debate people and how he came up through that system at university how he would be on firing line and it's very clear that his brain would just move from thing to thing to thing to thing but of course, mm-hmm. that lack of focus makes it very difficult to write the great conservative opus, <laughs> which we yeah. all three of us know he tried and failed at a magnificent level, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. which was also happening while he was enmeshed in everything Edgar Smith. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought it was striking that to write his novels, especially the spy novels, the Blackford Oaks novels, he would have to kind of decamp to Switzerland for a month and basically do nothing but try to write that novel and ski. Tough life. I mean, he was already in the habit of going up to Switzerland every winter mm-hmm. and hanging out with John Kenneth Galbraith and David <laughs> yes. Niven and whatever buddies would show up. And he even spent time with Vladimir Nabokov and his wife, Vera. Mm-hmm. They would go mm-hmm. have dinner with them on, on a number of occasions. So I think, look, when you when you have money and you have access to places like Gestad, a lot of things open up. Yeah, But those are the types of books that lend themselves to being written quickly. I mean, the yes. Blackford Oaks novels are pulp spy novels. Yeah. Entertainments. <laughs> so we've gotten up to 1965. Before we move forward, I would like to hear from you, because it was one of the things that fascinated me most, and you've already sort of alluded to some answers to this, but what was it about Smith that attracted Buckley? I mean, you sort of suggested that he flatters him, he sort of seduces him in the letters by sort of mimicking his style and being really sort of obsequious and complimentary. But is there anything else that accounts for why Buckley, for one, was sort of drawn to this person, to Edgar Smith, and for two, why he believed him? I mean, I think he believed him because he was primed to believe a story of someone who had been wronged so badly by the criminal justice system That said, it is interesting that it's someone like Edgar Smith, who was young, who was white, who was male, who appeared to be doing the whole thing of pulling himself up by his bootstraps and bettering himself and making himself more educated and more cultured and more of a person than he was when he was the 23-year-old kid married with a two-month-old baby who just could not wrap his head around being married or having a job or doing anything involving responsibility. This was a story that I heard after Scoundrel was published that when his and his first wife's daughter was born, the wife, Patricia, was at the hospital. A friend of theirs drove her home with the baby and they get to the trailer and it's completely trashed because Edgar's basically been partying the whole time as he's waiting for his (laughs) wife to come back with their new baby. Mm-hmm. And Patricia, in tandem with the friend who drove her home, they were the ones who cleaned up the trailer, not yeah, Edgar. Yeah. So this was not somebody who, frankly, gave a shit about other people. Yeah. You know, he'd been in the military. He had washed out for reasons that were kind of nebulous that 
may or may not have involved a breakdown. And he also had hearing issues. His parents had been divorced. There was just a lot of instability. And the fact that he could travel from that to the Edgar Smith who presented himself by letter in the early 60s, that was a market improvement. And it was a sort of vindication Uh of the idea that if a man, even one who's poor, at least working class, and who has had all these problems, could just set himself on a better path, then he can succeed without the help of like the government or blah, 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 blah. I mean, in that, right. in that sort of, there's an ideological attraction there. But I did want to ask, you said that Buckley would be primed to believe that the criminal justice system had treated him so badly. But then there is this contradiction, which you point to in your book, yes. which is Buckley at this time in the mid-1960s and throughout the, the whole era of him advocating on Smith's behalf, he is still a, a supporter of more punitive policing uh, of, the, of the death penalty consistently, right? Of the death penalty for, for everyone else. <laughs> right. And so that's why I stress it's interesting that it's Edgar Smith in particular who merits Buckley's attention and advocacy because if it had been someone who had different colored skin had a different background, who was of a different socioeconomic status, who had, quote, not bettered himself or done so in a way that Buckley could recognize, there would not be a story here because Buckley just never would have paid attention. There's also the fact of the nature of this crime, uh, you know, a crime against a woman who, as Edgar later admits, spurned his sexual advances. And I, I think, like, the fact that, as you point to in the book, that when Buckley writes about Vicky Zielinski, he, taking his cue from Edgar, sexualizes this teenager. Right. He doesn't see her as a 15-year-old girl. He sees her as a young woman who has feminine wiles and is a seductress. And I think to go back to what we were talking about, his Catholicism, I didn't get into it in a major way, but it has to be the reason sort of psychologically and spiritually as to why Edgar's story so appealed to Buckley, this idea that he could be saved, that he could be bettered. And something Chris told me, which sort of, I think, got into Scoundrel, but he he did go into it in a little more detail, that he felt that if Buckley was comfortable saying anything or venting or sharing any information after the fact, after everything had imploded, it would be in the confessional. And that feels right to me because it's sacrosanct, it's private, it cannot be shared with anyone else. I mean, certainly he wasn't going to tell Pat about it. Right. Well, Sarah, one of the questions I had about this kind of early phase, relatively early phase, was one, Buckley did meet him. I mean, it took quite some doing and some court orders, but yes. Yes. And one of the things that you point to is that the kind of affect of Edgar Smith in his letters, the man Buckley ended up meeting did not convey that same impression. He seemed like a bit more of a... What's the language Buckley would use to describe him? He said that he had spent more time in pool halls than yeah. libraries. <laughs> right, the pool like halls that. line, yes. So somewhat derogatory, low class. It seemed like that didn't derail it or anything, but I just thought that was interesting and maybe speaks to the way Smith could mimic, in a form like writing, whoever he was corresponding with. I mean, it's hard to meet anyone when they've been incarcerated for a long time because prison operates in different spheres and certainly. The death house at Trenton State Prison, when Edgar was there, he was only allowed out of his cell one hour a day and was only allowed to shower one day a week for like 10 minutes. So he was constantly by himself. So for Smith to have this outlet 
to correspond with Buckley and to sort of start taking on some of the written mannerisms that Buckley himself had and mm. sound more erudite. And then Buckley gets there and it's unclear to me, I believe this was his, it was certainly his first visit to death row. I'm not sure if it was his first visit ever to prison, but it wouldn't surprise me. Certainly the way mm-hmm. that he described it in that Esquire piece, it felt very alien and novel and jarring uh-huh. and discomforting. And then he meets Edgar and there's a partition and he can't really see him mm-hmm. and they have to be separated out. And then Edgar opens his mouth and he delivers his speech in this very pronounced New Jersey accent, which if you look on YouTube and watch the Firing Line episodes with Edgar Smith, you can hear it for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time I heard them, I was, it was very jarring for me just mm-hmm. because it wasn't the voice of Edgar in his letters. Mm-hmm. So if I felt that, certainly Buckley would have felt that. It also happened later on when Edgar's book editor, Sophie Wilkins, whom I know we will be discussing yeah, at some yeah, length yeah. very soon, <laughs> both of them had that dissonant feeling of Edgar the man in person was not Edgar the man in the letters. And I think in both instances, they just sort of filed that away and almost pretended that didn't happen Mm. and just Mm -hmm. carried on with the correspondence in the letters, maybe thinking, obviously, I can't speculate beyond what is actually contained in letters, but there's a lot of speculation and fantasy. And I think as Sam put it in his piece, an element of romance in the letters and this idea of well, what will happen when he's free? What potential does he have? Mm. What possibilities are there for him? Well, maybe when he's free and he's out and becoming a literary figure of stature that somehow all of the dissonance will evaporate, which Mm. of course it did not. It did the the exact opposite. I just want to mention too, so as he's engaging with this correspondence with Smith, he's running for mayor with one of his major planks being opposing a civilian review board that would review cases of police brutality. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and he's attracting the police to his campaign in droves. Yeah, and when we talked with Sam Tannenhaus about that mayoral run, even responses to things happening in the South with regards to civil rights, you know, cops, you know, cracking the heads of black people, Buckley said a few inflammatory things about that, which just underscores your point, Sarah, about maybe some of the sources of his sympathy for Smith. But I guess to move us forward a little bit, there's kind of two tracks here, right? There's the track of Smith starting to write this this book about his his case, his situation, and his ongoing legal machinations, which were, I think a key moment is that 1966 is when the Supreme Court affirmed Miranda rights. That is right, yes. And that came on the heels of a couple of other Supreme Court decisions, I think Gideon v. Wainwright and Masia. But these decisions as part of the Warren Court kind of codified essentially how police should be behaving towards those in custody or those they suspect of committing crimes. Whereas in 1957, none of that existed and the police could do anything they want. And not only could they interrogate suspects as they saw fit, they could do it while reporters were just sort of hanging around (laughs) and watching the whole proceedings. Like, what is this? You're contaminating evidence. Oh my God. (laughs) And it's, 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 it's among the very rich contradictions of this story that these couple of pro defendant decisions by the Warren court were at the time and remained just the absolute bete noir of the conservative movement in the pages of National Review. They absolutely right. hated these decisions. They still hate these decisions. They hate the entire Warren Court. I yes. mean, that was the book Brent Bozell, Bill Buckley's brother-in-law, yes. was supposedly going to write was a big you know, attack on the Warren Court. 
And so the fact that, and again, this is a spoiler, but <laughs> that that ultimately Edgar gets out on the basis of him having a pre-Miranda confession, that his lawyers were able to convince a uh, panel of judges was coerced, is what gets him out, which is, the, is sort of the end point of Buckley's advocacy on his behalf at the very same time that his magazine is still sort of <laughs> leading the charge against these decisions. Yeah, it's essentially Warren Court for me, not for thee. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So, Matt, I think you're right to say that these two things are proceeding in tandem, the, the court machinations. Buckley's getting more and better lawyers for Smith. He's continuing to succeed at getting these stays. There's the change from the Supreme Court. Um, and on the, in the other track is where this literary career for Smith is starting to take off. And in pursuit of that, Buckley introduces him to Sophie Wilkins. And I think we should bring her into the story because she's such a vivid and compelling character and so important to the story. So who was Sophie Wilkins and what role did she play in this story? I mean, first and foremost, without Sophie Wilkins, there is simply no book. And it's because when I first discovered her role and just how deeply embedded she was in the story, and more to the point, just the rich archive that she had of letters, not only sent to her, but copies of the ones that she sent. I just had the sense of, I can understand how the story works, not just as a pas de deux, a convict and a conservative, but now there's this vibrant intellectual woman, a book editor, a translator, a real force of nature, someone who had just such an ebullient personality, who was exhilarating and exhausting and maddening. And she was such wonderful company, even when she drove me crazy. Yeah, <laughs> All of which is to say... Sophie Wilkins was in her 50s. She had emigrated from Vienna with her family when she was 12. At the time, she spoke no English. And within three or four years, she graduated high school in Brooklyn, went to Brooklyn College, got a master's degree, was pursuing a PhD. She would eventually be an assistant to Lionel Trilling at Columbia. She had a very brief early marriage and then a second marriage to a psychiatrist produced her two sons, Adam and Daniel. And then when the story sort of starts, she has been at Knopf for, I think, six years. So she joined as an assistant in her 40s, which was very unusual for book publishing then and now. And the Knopf of 1965 and onward was an environment that was very chilly, repressed, introverted, waspy, whatever pejorative or mm -hmm. adjective you want to use. And Sophie's just barreling about and emoting at high pitch and people don't know what to do with her and the projects that she wants to pursue, most of them don't go anywhere or she's trying to acquire things and they don't want it. So she reads this piece in Esquire that Buckley writes and she sees the at the end that there's the Edgar Smith Defense Fund. So she writes a letter and says she's planning on donating and that based on the letters that are quoted, is Edgar working on a book? And at that point, he was not. But within six months, he began to. And then fast forward to the summer of 1967, when Edgar is very deep into the manuscript that would become Brief Against Death, his first book. And he tells Buckley that he'd actually like to figure out how to publish this. How would this work? And because he had had this prior exchange with Sophie about it, he gets in touch with her and says, Edgar seems to be ready to pursue a manuscript. So get in touch with his mother. And that's how 
Sophie first gets into the orbit in around late May of 67. And then she and Edgar exchange their first letters in July of 67. Mm. And at first, it's strictly professional. Right. Strictly about what it is to be a book editor, whether you need an agent, what books Edgar might consider reading. And with every subsequent letter, it just started to get a little stranger, where Edgar's making comments on Sophie's appearance and asking for pictures. And she's telling him about going on vacation in Europe and hooking up with some Greek guy, and he makes a comment about this. (laughs) And then somehow it's the fall, and things are getting sexier. And then by the end, they're both kind of declaring their love for one another. And by early 68, they're sending like really dirty epics that didn't make it through the censors and had to be sent through Edgar's state lawyer <laughs> in a seal envelope as like, quote, legal correspondence. Yeah. So mm-hmm. imagine I'm at Columbia. It's early 2016. Another one of these internet rabbit holes had found a listing for Sophie's archive. I knew next to nothing about her. And I get there and I start to read and I thought, oh, it's probably just going to be benign correspondence between an author and an editor, but that's interesting to me as someone who covered publishing for over a decade, but I didn't know how much of it was going to make it into the book. (laughs) And then I started (laughs) reading some of the really, really smutty stuff and trying to cover my mouth because it's a library and it's very quiet and I don't want to give the game away or whatever. And I don't even know who else has looked at this. It's so incredible. Because people are not exactly clamoring to request Sophie Wilkins' archives. Yeah, right, right. It's incredible. And that's when I knew, when I finally was able to put it all together, that's what crystallized this project as a book. It's so crucial, the relationship that develops between Sophie and Edgar. But I also think your book is so vivid in depicting the relationship that develops between Sophie and Buckley. I love the scene where they meet each other at a restaurant. At Payone's, yes. Uh, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, where Buckley, I'm sure, feted many people who he was trying to impress. And th- this is sort of from Sophie's perspective. You write, his smile was brilliant, his manner genial. At one point, Sophie quipped, ah, oh, well, let's not be juvenile. To which Buckley replied, ah, let's. After that, all her reservations about him dissipated immediately, which is such a Buckley, such totally. a classic <laughs> Buckley seduction <laughs> moment. Yeah, And you can just see it with the, the brilliant the smile, smile of the teeth. Like he wants to eat you, maybe. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's irresistible. Of course it would be. And for someone like Sophie, who at the time was also in this tremendously protracted state of loneliness and despair, because the man that she was married to, the academic and writer Thurman Wilkins, was going through severe mental health issues. Yeah. And she was looking after him and just didn't have it really many outlets. Like she would tell people, but I just don't think she was getting the sympathy and the support that she needed. Her sons Mm -hmm. were away at college and starting on their own lives. And so she was very much alone and just wrote a lot of letters to compensate for those feelings of loneliness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for someone like Buckley to invite her out at his chosen restaurant, Nicola Payone, and be charmed and seduced, how could Sophie not fall for that? And this is where I think it's so interesting that it becomes a story about these three people, not just Buckley and Edgar, and not just Buckley's relationship with Sophie, but this sort of triangle. And this is where I was really wondering, because I don't really remember how explicitly you identified or answered this question in the book, but how aware was Buckley of the 
sexual nature of the relationship between Sophie and Smith that had developed through the letters. He was more aware than I initially thought. I don't know if he was like 110% aware, but every now and then there'd be these comments like Sophie would refer to Edgar as the quote, hot prisoner from Trenton. (laughs) And he would just sort of go along with that. And certainly when in 68, right before Brief Against Death came out and Edgar completely flipped out that there were copy editing problems and typos and wanted the book canceled and it completely ruptured his and Sophie's relationship. And it took about two weeks before they were back on equilibrium. And Buckley was getting all of the dish from both of them and trying to play peacemaker and saying, this would be very silly to disrupt this great friendship between the two of you and to disrupt the publication of this book. And it wasn't the first time that he would try to play peacemaker between the two of these different volatile personalities. I think he definitely knew something was up But I think he didn't think about it that much and just tried not to pay it too much attention. It was just sort of, okay, sure, whatever. um, Let's just carry on. Right. I found this sort of movement in the book from the seduction between Edgar and Buckley. And I use that term, you know, (laughs) metaphorically, I suppose, though not entirely, to the seduction between Edgar and Sophie to be just such a rich kind of contrast or sort of uh, juxtaposition or they're contiguous with each other because there's one thing about Buckley, which I know that you know, because you've read lots of his letters, is that he is the most flirtatious writer of letters. Every single letter is basically a seduction, whether he's writing to Ronald Reagan or Nancy Reagan or one of his friends or Edgar Smith or Sophie Wilkins. And there's certain language that he uses that you, it's a little bit either coded or suggestive, like he would say to Sophie in particular, I'm longing to see you or yes. which just very is very is very romantic <laughs> in nature. And you just wonder, why are you using that? But it's also why I think when he signed a letter, a late letter to Edgar, faithfully yours, that I I knew that that was the brush off because that's he had just never been signing letters that way beyond the early days that he had moved to as ever or, or Bill or just yeah. you know, very it was much more intimate and suddenly that was over. And you, and you could just track it through language. The thrill is gone. Well, Sarah, uh, Smith's book was published in 1968. There's so many wonderful details, fascinating details in your book about that. One that really caught my eye was when they were angling to get Truman Capote to either <laughs> yes. have a blurb on the book or maybe write a review of it. But Buckley talked to Capote about it, and Capote thought Smith was guilty. The whole time, yes. The whole time. And this is a great line. It's a very Truman Capote line. Listeners will know, my mind always goes to the little gossipy asides. Capote tells Buckley he, he thinks he's guilty. Smith is guilty. And Buckley asks him why. And Capote says, I never met one yet who wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, it, while I was writing Scoundrel, I didn't even know the extent to which Capote would be an expert on it, because it wasn't just about... Perry Smith and Dick Hickok, who were the murderers at the heart of In Cold Blood. Mm -hmm. But at the time that Brief Against Death had come out, Capote had been working for about the prior year and a half on a television documentary for ABC called Death Row USA, where he went and interviewed prisoners on death row at San Quentin in Colorado, and I believe one other place. But he he talked to a lot of guys on death row. Mm -hmm. And the resulting documentary never actually aired because there was a regime change at ABC and the new guy basically said, oh, this is too dark. We can't deal with it. Uh So there was 
one screening, I think at Rizzoli Theater in Midtown Manhattan, Buckley went and wrote about wrote a whole column about it. Wow. But as far as I know, it's sitting in a vault somewhere moldering and hopefully someday I will be able to watch it and maybe the world will. But wow. Capote had become kind of this go-to pundit for criminal justice. Right, right, right. Which is bizarre. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's super bizarre. I'm just imagining, Sarah, just the interviews with like prisoners on death row. I'm not going to do it like Truman Capote impression here, but the, the imagery is just like blowing my mind thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, some of it you can actually see in an as-told-to fashion because Esquire published a companion article to what should have been the documentary. Uh. And reading those was totally fascinating. And needless to say, I am. it sent me down a rabbit hole that I am still in of essentially Truman Capote's post-in-cold-blood criminal justice work, because hmm. there's actually a lot more <laughs> wow. than people realize. And at one point, it actually led him to being charged with contempt of court. And he, he was in prison for a couple of days, wow. which was just bizarre. Wow. And he's like, I don't want to talk about it. It's too boring. <laughs> <laughs> so of course, the crime story writer in me is like, really? I, I, I want to know more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's also why reaching out to Capote for a blurb or something was perceived as being really important for Edgar and Brief Against right. Death. And when Capote comes back and says, I could blurb it, but because he's guilty, I would want to write a piece about it. He never actually did that. And I later learned that for this documentary, he had intended to go to New Jersey State Prison and actually interview Edgar. It was on his mm. list, oh, wow. but they wouldn't let press in. Hmm. I mean, Buckley yeah. got in uh -huh. through a court order as, as legal counsel. Right. Sophie got mm -hmm. in because she was a, quote, cousin. That, that was the fiction <laughs> uh -huh. that they used. So Capote was not going to get in to meet him. Just to underscore that, I think, just it cannot be lost how deeply involved in the legal process and the sort of the sort of just supportive advocacy around this case Buckley was just to realize that he was being allowed to visit him on the basis of being part of his team. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I think that like people can sort of think about this if they only know this story glancingly, they might think, okay, he advocated in a few magazine articles for this guy's freedom. No, no, no. He was deeply involved in the advocacy for it. He was his financial proxy after the book came out. Well, not just after the book came out, when the book advance was signed, the money went through Buckley. Yes. Because that was the only way they were going to make it work to get around the prison wardens. He connected him with the high-powered law firm from DC. But he, did, yes. he did so, so much. Yeah. Well, Sarah, how was the book received? It was received pretty well. It, it certainly helped to have William F. Buckley as your outside man, Mm -hmm. Or your inside man, depending on how you characterize it. Yeah. He wrote an introduction to the book. He went on talk <laughs> shows. He went on The Tonight Show. He went on other places. He could talk about it on Firing Line with other people if he so chose. Some of the reviews that I read were very bizarre to me. Hmm. I still think about Ross McDonald, the great crime writer, yes. who reviewed it for the New York Times Book Review and essentially deciding, well... I still don't know what I think about the case, but Edgar's made a very compelling argument, and clearly there are some irregularities. And it's like, come on, Ross, you have to <laughs> fall for this. You, a crime writer who writes all these narratives. But I mean, having written about Ross McDonald and his wife, the great writer Margaret Millar and their daughter Linda, there was a lot of psychological damage happening there that, of mm. course, informed all of his novels. But a lot of the coverage was, by and large, positive, certainly if you read the Bergen record, there would be more blowback from locals. We're like, why is this guy getting more attention? We thought we had dealt with him. Why is he still alive? Why is he able to write books? Yeah. What's going on here? And of course, all the while, and I think it's also important to stress, 
a 15-year-old girl was murdered. And she did not have the chance to grow up and have a life of her own and do anything and came from a background of physical abuse. Her father was an alcoholic. The divorce was contentious, to say the least. Her mother, after the fact, has an accident and she loses some of her fingers, moves out to California with the other kids. There's so much damage that just was never discussed internally in the family mm-hmm. and is still, I think, reverberating among generations. And so for Edgar Smith to become famous just exacerbated so much trauma and so many of these wounds that it's impossible to overcome that. Yeah. So all of that is happening as he's becoming feted and Buckley's forgetting because he writes about Vicky, as we've talked about, in this way that dehumanizes her. And certainly Edgar writes about her in Brief Against Death, and particularly in the novel that he publishes a couple of years later, A Reasonable Doubt, in this way that I just found so disgusting. (laughs) And I'm reading through this going, I think I'm more affected by the fictional portrayal of the avatar for Vicky than I am from the way that he writes about her in Brief Against Death, because I'm expecting that. But I wasn't necessarily expecting it to be so bad in the novel, which also itself is not very good. And I read it so you all didn't have to. Right. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, Sarah, one of the things before we leave the thread of the publication of this book, and maybe this will be a bit of a transition to then, you know, Smith eventually getting out of jail and, and what happens after. There are moments in some of the correspondence, kind of flashes of violence, right? We We mentioned that Smith kind of flipped out over some pretty minor copy edits in the book when he saw the final version, when, you know, when he got a copy of it at the jail. But he, you know, says things, this is a letter to Sophie, you know, this caused tension between them because they were not only sexy correspondents, but she was his editor. And he says this, when horses get like that, referencing some of these kind of arguments or his perception that Sophie was being a little hysterical or something. He says this, when horses get like that, they are shot and sent to the glue factory. Yeah. I mean, vivid imagery and not in a good way. No, no. And and there's even a moment where, where Sophie uh, writes to Steve Lichtenstein, Smith's lawyer, where she says, frankly, is our friend psycho? Yes. And so what do you make of some of those glimpses in the correspondence? I think Sophie in particular knew on some level what was actually going on and really tamped it down because she would later claim that all of the smutty epics and epistolary romance was (laughs) a feint in service of getting this book out in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a little bit of doth protesteth too much on her part because she was really embedded deeply and certainly reading through the correspondence in quasi real time, you really see how she gets seduced and how she lets herself be seduced because she herself, in this state of alienation and loneliness and depression, I mean, her own son said to me, most likely if we were diagnosing her now, she would be diagnosed as bipolar. You know, I think it's fair to say there was some mental health, maybe not instability, but certainly medication may have been useful. We don't know. Sure. But she was just in a state where she's getting all of this positive feedback that's growing from Edgar. I mean, no wonder it becomes insanely inappropriate. I mean, this is not the way that most book editors behave towards their authors and vice versa. (laughs) So I think Sophie was trying to minimize how deeply she actually did feel for Edgar because after the fact, he does get out, he will commit another horrible crime. 
it's embarrassing. It's shameful for her. Mm-hmm. It makes her question everything on all of her judgments. And even though by that point, later on, she's already kind of maybe not washed her hands of Edgar, but they're not, they're not in touch anymore. And that's a, a chapter in her life that she thinks she can put behind her. But how can you? I mean, she had invested so much emotional mm-hmm. energy in him and creative energy and professional energy too, that when it all kind of imploded, it would also implode upon her, even though she didn't really make it to media coverage in the way that Buckley did. Right. But privately, mm-hmm. it absolutely affected her. There's a line you have in the book where Edgar is, uh, this is one of the, one of the arguments she's, he's having with Sophie, where it's about whether to call the book Murder in Maywa or Brief Against Death, right? And he's, he's insists that it should say, have Maywa on the cover because it's precisely the potential jury pool who he wants to read the book and be influenced <laughs> yes. by, by evidence that he says in the letter, quote, evidence that will be inadmissible in court. And so she knows that, like you're saying, Buckley's involvement is way more public. He's really running around with the lawyers and doing all this stuff. But, but she knows very intimately that the project of this book is the project of Smith's exoneration, including sort of evading the evidentiary rules in order to, to influence the jury that he might have in a potential future trial. So right. it makes perfect sense that she would feel a great, a deep, deep remorse um, and a deep, deep sense of shame about her involvement in it. And I, and I do think we'll get to this towards the end, but the sort of way in which Sophie and Bill process the memory of this trauma is such as it is over the course of the rest of her life um, is also a really interesting kind of denouement to the story too. Yeah. I mean, I described it as they were two survivors of a shared war and they couldn't really share it with anyone else, not in the yeah. same way, because no one knew what had happened with the same intimacy that both Bill Mm -hmm. and Sophie did. What I also find so fascinating is that despite all of the malevolence of Edgar Smith, he did create the grounds for two of Buckley's most lasting friendships. One of them was with Sophie Mm -hmm. and the other was with Stephen Newman, who was the young lawyer at Williams and Connolly who represented Edgar at the federal level and got the Supreme court to essentially create the grounds for his conviction to be overturned. Right. Which is another conundrum of this whole story. How is it that somebody so awful like Edgar Smith could lead to such enduring friendships? Well, Sarah, maybe we should talk about how Smith is eventually released from prison. He eventually pleads guilty to what? Uh, Is it second degree murder? Second degree murder. Or essentially... I think in November of 68, the Supreme Court rules that the confession needs to be thrown out and the lower courts need to do something about it. It takes a few years. And then eventually in early 71, a lower court in New Jersey says, yeah, uh, Edgar needs a new trial. And so there's a lot of back and forth as to whether there'll be a new trial or whether Edgar should plead guilty and then get time served. And Edgar at first fights it, is like, I want a trial, I want to be vindicated, et cetera, et cetera. But Newman's talking about it. Buckley is reticent. And finally, Edgar goes along with it. So in December, early December 71, there is a court hearing in front of Judge Morris Pashman. And Pashman asks him, how do you plead guilty? Did you kill Victoria Zelinsky? Yes. Goes through the whole rigmarole. And then he is freed, gets into a car, a limo with Buckley. There's rosé, there's roast beef sandwiches. <laughs> I love this. I love this detail. And Buckley's writing the intro to that yes. episode of Firing Line on his lap in the typewriter in the back of the limo as they're like crossing, you know, bridges into New York City. They cross the river and go tape firing line. 
and there are two episodes. <laughs> I mean, it's really a strange artifact, that interview. Partially to me because in the beginning, Buckley is so preoccupied with the problem of the fact that just a few hours earlier, <laughs> yes, this guy who he had spent a decade defending said, yes, I killed her. And he needs to like within the bounds of what Edgar's obligations are to the legal gesture that he has just made and that his of his parole, he needs to somehow for himself and for his audience figure out a way to say, but you didn't really do it, right? <laughs> Which is also why in the second episode with the various reporters, there was Ronald Sullivan of the Times, there was Hans Knight of the Bulletin, both of whom wrote extensively about the case. And Sullivan is just going after Smith with all cylinders firing, being like, how could you say one thing in court? Now you're trying to say this now. So what is it? Are you guilty? Are you not guilty? Did you kill her? Did you not kill her? And then Buckley's just like, essentially, can we just table this and move on? Like, it's the classic, <laughs> yes. I cannot deal. <laughs> he cannot deal. He cannot deal. It really gets heated in that second episode. Yes. And so after the firing line recordings, there's a party Buckley throws for him at his... This is a great indication. If you think about like various class distinctions in America, it took me a while to learn what a masonette was. Yes. <laughs> uh, but at Buckley's masonette in Manhattan, he threw a party for Smith. And I was very interested in then this period where Smith is kind of in New York. He's been freed. Um, you know, he's, he's published this book. He's working on a novel. You know, at various points in his correspondence, he's even talked about making one of his books into a movie. But I was struck by the story you tell about Agatha Schmidt, who was yes. um, the, the National Review's research director. And Smith had come by the office when she was the only one in there. And it kind of startled her. And she actually says there was a feeling of evil she felt when he came into the office. How would you kind of describe this this kind of in-between period between, you know, him being released and the kind of the story's tragic ending. Well, I think it's that literary ability does not correlate with character. <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> put it very, very mildly, yeah. <laughs> and a great many people were about to find out just how wildly it did not correlate. And so some people saw it right away, like Aggie, who -hmm. told me the story, and I still remember just the feeling in her voice when she said that line about, I had, you know, there was this feeling of evil. And then I asked her, did you tell Bill? And she's like, I don't think so. And huh. so the fact that he may never have known that she experienced this hair raising episode and could almost see what Edgar was like and felt like she had to keep it from him kind of haunts me to some degree. I also think about the purported line that Pat Buckley said yeah, Pat. at that very party at the Maisonette. At one point, Pat apparently yells, get that murder out of my bedroom, which is just, <laughs> that to me, I put in a footnote only because there was no way to corroborate it beyond the source who told me, but it was too good not to share. Everything I've read of her that also felt accurate and true to the personality that I'm aware of. So I had to, well, I had to yeah, keep that yes. in there. I think it was one of Pat's jobs to like, see through an enormous amount of bullshit with which her husband lived his life. <laughs> she had to put up with a lot. And I think that's why she also carved out such a tremendous independent life of her own. Yeah, yeah. If anything, I wish someone would write a biography of her because yeah. it'd be so rich and fascinating. And the people that she spent time with that were so very different from Bill and trying to unpack their marriage as a 
as a separate thing from the larger Buckley epic yeah. that I know Sam Tannenhaus has been working on. Sarah, one small point on that. A couple of weeks ago, I had dinner with the novelist Edmund White, and he told me that, you know, after Bill Buckley's infamous New York Times column about yes. uh, HIV positive gay men needing a, a, a tattoo to identify them, that the next day Pat volunteered at St. Vincent's Hospital. This is in the 80s, height of the yeah. AIDS crisis. I mean, she was a noted advocate for AIDS patients. But that story really struck me. That op-ed is so beyond incendiary, and I sort of feel in keeping with the way John Judas wrote about it in his book on Buckley, that essentially Buckley felt like he was losing relevance and almost had to troll his way back into existence. Mm-hmm. So that whole piece is is bad faith reading to me. Well, so Smith has his time in the sun, in the literary sun. Pat Buckley has his number, but a lot of other people don't. <laughs> Correct. The women whom he menaces, of course, do see the really deep viciousness under the surface, but probably a lot of the men do not. And then things kind of start to fall apart for him. It takes a little while, but they definitely do start to fall apart. He publishes another nonfiction book called Getting Out, which he had started in prison and finished up while he was free. And that was a book that Buckley actually did not care for at all and thought it was rather disappointing. And by 73, the bloom is definitely off the rose. Buckley is still financially on the hook for Edgar. And so when Edgar starts defaulting on bank stuff and skips town and Buckley's left holding the bag. That doesn't exactly endear himself to Buckley. Mm -hmm. So Edgar lives in New York for a while. Then he moves across back to New Jersey. He takes up with several women and then eventually marries a much younger Bergen County girl named Paige Heimeyer. They move out to San Diego and he claims that he's trying to make a living as a writer, but nothing is really is happening He gets back in touch with Buckley around early 75 to finally update him on his whereabouts and to apologize for defaulting on those loans. And Buckley gives a speech in San Diego and Edgar and Paige meet him. They go out for a drink. Edgar makes this point of insisting on paying, even though he is doing so on credit and doesn't actually have any money. (laughs) He owes Buckley like $10,000. Yeah, yeah. A couple beers will cover it. (laughs) Exactly. There's such a prescient letter that Edgar writes, Bill, in 75, I believe, essentially saying, I'm feeling some deja vu. I have a wife who's about the same age as my wife was back in the 50s, having trouble keeping a job. I'm at loose ends. The writing's not really working out. Why does this feel like it's the 50s? And and I'm thinking, dun, 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 something terrible is going to happen. And sadly and unfortunately, it does. It takes until October of 76 when Edgar goes in for a gig at the San Diego Union Tribune. I believe he had contributed a couple of pieces, wants something more permanent and, and is rebuffed. Page is supporting them entirely. He may or may not be involved with some drug runners. There's one letter that he sent Bill that was just like, such peak bullshit about everything that it's so deranged. it's hard to know. It's hard to know what was true. I assume none of it was true. It was certainly impossible to corroborate. But all the old rage is coming back. Mm-hmm. And then he takes the car, and a woman is coming out of her workplace. Her name is Lisa Osbin. He's never met her before. She has no idea who he is, but he abducts her takes her in the car and they struggle and he stabs her a number of times, but she fights him off. And even with the knife embedded in her body, she manages to break free, get out through the passenger side. The car stops. People are milling about the highway. 
but he manages to take off and is a fugitive for a little while. Yeah, it is very carefully and vividly rendered in your book. We all know what's going to happen in this book from the beginning. Uh, I think that was a good choice. It was the only choice I could make. And that was because I wanted to deflate any sense that Edgar was, even though he's the titular scoundrel, that he was the most important character, that it was far more important Mm -hmm. to shed light on everybody in his orbit, and particularly the women and girls that he harmed. Right, including someone from before this story even starts, from when he was younger. So after this happens... Edgar goes on the run. We should say also Lisa survived. Yes, he came very close to killing another woman, but Lisa did survive and died in 2019. But Edgar is on the run. He does end up back in New York for a little while and apparently crashes at the place of Jeffrey Norman, who at the time was an editor at Playboy and other magazines. Mm -hmm. So Edgar worked for him in some capacity. And he also stole some money and stole a car or whatever. And <laughs> and at one point, Buckley and the whole group sort of assemble and are trying to protect themselves in case he shows up. And Christopher is staying at the Maisonette and gets so hot, hyped up that he takes a gun and he hears somebody and it turns out it's his friend coming to visit. And Edgar was never anywhere near <laughs> that place. But eventually he ends up in Vegas and he places a call and Bill's faithful and frankly, wonderful secretary, Frances Bronson, who I think without her, a lot of Buckley's day-to-day life just could not have functioned. Frances picks up and he tells her where he is and which hotel is at. And she improvises it. Oh, he's on a speaking engagement in Albuquerque, which he was not. And then she relays (laughs) it to Bill and then he calls the FBI. And the next morning they get him and he would spend the rest of his life in prison. He was convicted of attempted murder, of kidnapping, There was a sexual assault component to it, which resulted in him making a speech about, I'm a mentally disordered sex offender, and I killed Vicky Zielinski, and I did this other earlier crime. But he does so in a way that it's very clear he's just angling to shave off prison time. Yes. there's There's nothing genuine about anything to do with Edgar Smith. It's such a fascinating mark of the embeddedness of various kinds of patriarchal, nasty, misogynist norms in our legal system or certain states' legal systems that he could actually shave off legal time if it was an attempted rape and not yes. merely a kidnapping. While we're at this moment in the narrative, I was wondering what Sophie's reaction was. You said like nothing Edgar Smith said was not bullshit. Sophie has the great line in the letter that he was phony as a $3 bill. Yes. And you say, actually, it is remarkable how astute, yet how deluded Sophie was in that particular letter, meaning because she actually thought because he was such a bullshitter, he might not have actually done it. Right. So what was her reaction to his eventual denouement in this way? Mostly it would come in fragments after the fact. I don't have a letter from Sophie from October of 1976 immediately (laughs) reacting. But certainly in the post-Edgar incarceration time, the letters between herself and Bill, it was that mixture of remorse, of shame, of, I just don't want him to get out. I don't want him to contact me. And it's because when Buckley finally writes one more time about Edgar Smith, he had done one column, a couple of columns, actually, I think in the immediate aftermath of his arrest and then his conviction. But the big piece wouldn't come until 1979 when Buckley writes for Life magazine about everything that had happened after Edgar got out. Mm -hmm. yeah, And so he quotes from 
Edgar's wife, Paige. And I think he mentioned Sophie, but glancingly. Mm -hmm. And Edgar goes ballistic. He writes a terrible letter to Paige, just calling her all sorts of names and just being horrible. And then he writes another incendiary letter to Bill, calling him a turkey. And how could you trust what my wife is saying? And by the way, I'm divorcing her and everything is terrible. And uh, I never want to hear from you again. So that kind of holds. And Sophie doesn't hear from him either. He vents most of his vitriol upon poor Paige, who just got in way over her head. I mean, she was so young and thought he was somebody he was clearly not. And it took her decades to even grapple with this, let alone recover. And it completely ruined her life and altered it immeasurably. And for Sophie, there's one last thing in 1998, because at that point, Edgar gets in touch with Bill one more time to say, I have published another book. It was basically vanity published. It grew out of an idea that apparently Sophie had suggested. So he wanted to be in touch with her just to let her know if she might want the book, which she did not. (laughs) And Bill writes a memo to her and to Jack Carley and I think to Steve Human and a couple of other people just saying, I intend to answer it. So he does. And it's very businesslike, but cordial. And Edgar professes some kind of apology and says that he had behaved terribly and you can believe what you want. I choose to take the tack that it was yet more bullshit. And that's it. So the narrative actually between Edgar and Bill and Sophie ends with the publication of this vanity published history. And then five years later, Sophie is dead at the age of 88. And by that point, she is in a much better place. She has reconnected with an old love from the 40s and married him. It was the poet Carl Shapiro. She has translated A Man Without Qualities, the great epic by Robert Musil, although Mm -hmm. her eyesight would become so bad that another translator would finish the work that she had started. Right. At one point, Buckley, in his wonderful obit for Sophie, describes that he wanted to get together with her for lunch and she demurs. And then he learns that she's in hospital, so he goes to visit on multiple occasions and is just so taken with the fact that even in her infirmity, that her mind is still working and is still as agile as ever. So she created a happy life for herself in the end, but it took a lot of doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things I love about your book is just how vividly her character comes through. I looked very closely at the portions of the book where the letters between Buckley and Sophie, where they're they're kind of they're kind of engaged in this as you mentioned, sort of sporadic looking back and trying to make sense of what happened and sort of not looking exactly for absolution from each other, but just looking for comfort. And I just found that the way that Sophie wrote to Buckley about (laughs) her involvement in it, it was so much more thoughtful, (laughs) really, than Buckley was ever capable of, at least in public, right? Or at least to someone else besides, as you say, perhaps his priest, his confessor. Yeah. But she really did engage with it this insult and reflect about what it was and what what it actually what actually had happened that I know that I know that there are ways in which it seems like she tries to protect herself by sort of suggesting that her affection for Smith was always a ploy to get him to finish the book and blah 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 but even so there's just sort of a kind of as I think I write in the in my piece sort of a, a realistic contradictory <laughs> nature to the way that she accounts for herself. I found it uh, very, very moving and rich. I mean, I know for myself, I could really identify with her relentless ability to be introspective and just 
go back and double back on things. And I mean, there's an obsessiveness to it, but as someone who spends a lot of time by myself thinking, Sophie's personality was highly relatable. Mm-hmm. And Buckley was the challenge because I had to figure out how to humanize him. And it really wasn't until I figured out how important friendship was to him yeah. and that he never let ideology get in the way of a good friendship. And he prized loyalty above so many other qualities. And so it explains why he and Sophie, who were certainly differing on the ideological spectrum, but very similar culturally, they both shared a love of Bach and both were friends separately with the Bach specialist, Rosalind Turek, who would play at Buckley's Christmas parties because he was such a Bach devotee. I mean, uh-huh. you know, Brandenburg yes. Concerto number two is the themed of firing line. So we know this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's it's that love of the arts and that love of culture that even if you had differing political opinions, that shouldn't get in the way of actually being a good mm-hmm. friend. And Buckley was capable of being a good friend in ways that I think we're still finding out. I mean, I would hear independent stories of his largesse and generosity that tended to be on the anonymous side or tended to be on the, I don't want to broadcast this, but I'm going to help out someone who really needs it, even if he might be behaving in ways that are loathsome. It's one of Sam Tannenhaus's favorite anecdotes that I'm sure you've heard from him and he's told us a few times is that Buckley helped get Murray Kempton, the left-wing journalist's um, sort of essays published in multiple volumes, Uh, or or it was one volume, Mm -hmm. but he said, if it has to be multiple volumes, we'll do it. And it was Kempton who has the the quote, which he repeated many times, that Buckley had a genius for friendship. I mean, frankly, that's one of the things in my own grappling with Buckley, I find the hardest to know how to handle in the sense that, you know, his public intervention, some of which we've mentioned, could be quite loathsome, but his capacity for friendship and generosity in that context. And I think very importantly, in the New Testament, we're taught not to let the left hand know what the right hand does, right? And so this kind of semi-secret nature of some of Buckley's generosity to people, I find deeply Christian. And I, I, I find myself kind of not sure how to grapple with that particular mix of admiration and repulsion with him. Because, uh, you know, I, I, there's just too many accounts of him paying someone's hospital bill or putting yeah. someone's kid through college that, you know, that makes it a little harder to reduce him to just one thing. This is what makes it so contradictory is that I think that impulse is not insignificantly what was at work in his relationship with Smith. I agree. There was genuine feeling and genuine sense of, I want to help this man. And I guess we could say that he could be gullible because he just genuinely wanted to believe that the people in his orbit were the best people, even (laughs) if they didn't deserve that (laughs) in the slightest. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think, you know, in at least one sense, if you're going to really be merciful and generous and gracious to people you're probably going to be taken advantage of at some point. I think that's definitely true. And I just think part of the fascination I had with reading your book, Sarah, was, again, that tension at the heart of Buckley, which is that profound private generosity and and sense of mercy and grace and the completely ungenerous, unmerciful, brutal even effects of his public interventions when it comes to public policy. Like as we were getting at when he ran for mayor of New York on a tough on crime agenda, essentially, as he was trying to get this murderer out of jail. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if, well, some of it was a function of 
the family that dynamic that he grew up in and that the Buckleys themselves were almost this closed off universe and them against the world. And then he goes to Yale and becomes a star debater. Everything becomes almost an intellectual exercise that you can't help but dehumanize actual people who are affected by this, mm-hmm. which is something that his one of his most famous sparring partners, James Baldwin, I think never lost sight of. He always saw the human element of it to tremendous cost. And so getting involved with Edgar might have been a way for him to figure out how to be human. And boy, did that not work out so well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. So if, if Buckley's engagement with the, the human and merciful side of public advocacy did not get better after 1975, we should not be surprised. <laughs> One thing that I was so fascinated by, and I know, I actually know, Sarah, that you're preoccupied with the book, The Journalist and the Murderer. Oh, yes. Janet Malcolm. Janet Malcolm's book and the relationship, this sort of story of Joe McGinnis and... Jeffrey McDonald. A story in which a journalist, Joe McGinnis, reports on a trial of this McDonald who who was accused of killing his family and sort of ingratiates himself to the defendant and gets involved in sort of so much so that he's involved with the defense team and everyone assumes going to write a book that exonerates McDonald and then writes a book which does not, that, that says, no, <laughs> does in the fact, exact opposite. does the exact opposite of what everyone expected him to do and what he suggested that he was going to do. And then famously, amazingly, and in, there's an incredible account of it in Janet Malcolm's book, Journalist and the Murderer, uh, McDonald sues McGinnis for this, for this betrayal. And when I was reading your book, I was immediately thinking about Malcolm's sort of descriptions of the relationship between the journalistic subject and the journalist you know, basically how the journalistic subject is on a narcissist's holiday during the period of the interviews. And they realize once the piece comes out or the book comes out, they realize that this person wasn't on my side. They weren't trying to tell my story. They were trying to tell their story. And then she writes that the subject, quote, is confronted with the same mortifying spectacle of himself flunking a test of character he did not know he was taking. And I was so struck by the way in which and this is what we ended up titling my reviews, the, yes. the conservative and the murderer, that in a way, this this story is sort of the murderer and the journalist, <laughs> in the sense that the murderer is the one who takes Buckley for a ride, who, who, who flatters him, his narcissism. You know, Buckley has an illusion of control, and that it turns out that all of the time he was being used in a way by somebody. I wrote, in Wyman's book, Sophie and Buckley are the global marks, the pathetic and abject figures who are betrayed, who are made to suffer for their delusions, that is for falling in love. It is Smith who is the seducer, he who writes Buckley and Wilkins into his narrative, making them useful in his designs, characters in a fable that serves his aims, and can only in the end make them look and feel foolish, taken in. This is a quote, you are the either the most trusting person I have ever known or the biggest fool to come down the pike since Barnum's first customer. Smith wrote to Buckley (laughs) cruelly during his second imprisonment. Buckley especially had, quote, been on a sort of narcissist holiday, Malcolm's phrase, during the course of his friendship with Edgar. And when, as Malcolm writes, the moment of perpetea, the sort of reveal, the great reveal of the reality of what's going on, comes, in Smith's case, the work, which unveils the devastating truth, is not a book, but a second murder. And that is the moment at which Buckley realizes that he's flunked a test of character he did not know he was taking. And I was thinking about this so much, and I I wrote drafts of the review where it was all about Janet Malcolm. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard not to shake off her ghost here. Oh my God, it's so... I think I mentioned that the original working title was The Convict and the Conservative. So that was definitely... 
the symmetry that I had in mind. And and when she's describing the lawsuit that McDonald launches against McGinnis and the whole trial happens, I believe one of the people who was testifying in McGinnis's behalf was Buckley. This is what I was going to say. Yes. <laughs> Buckley is there saying it's totally fine to lie to your subject and flatter them and convince them that you're on their side. That's what we do as journalists. And Malcolm in the book sort of sort of paints him as a little bit of a clown and like yeah. he's not very convincing and whatever. But what I was thinking about reading that book again after reading your book was like, on whose behalf is Buckley really there? Because he was the one who was duped, you yes. know? He was the one who was flattered. It's it's just it's just it's so fascinating to me. Is Buckley sort of defending himself or is he again defending Smith? I mean, it's just kind of this rich, rich, rich self-contradictory moment. I mean, part of it is that I wish that I had access to the entirety of his testimony because that's such a tantalizing snippet that I, I want to see the full context of it. Yeah, I totally agree because Malcolm sort of gives you this snippet of Buckley's testimony. And she sort of, the way that she depicts it is that McDonald's lawyer, who kind of is depicted as this sort of masterful trial lawyer, leads Buckley closer and closer to saying, so it's okay to just lie. Yeah. <laughs> and then he does say, yes, it's okay just to lie. And I think it's also important, speaking of context, that this trial happens within a few years of the Mailer Abbott debacle. And when that happens, Buckley writes to Sophie Wilkins, essentially saying at least ours had the decency to wait a few years and botch the job, which is a line I will never, ever get out of my head. Given that we know so little, or that Buckley is so withholding about how he actually sort of metabolized this experience, I find it so fascinating that one of the things that he chose to do, like they asked a lot of different writers to come and say, this is an absurd lawsuit, this person killed somebody, and McGinnis wrote a book about him, like, so what? that he lied, that, that that Buckley agreed to go and show up for it, when it has so so many obvious overtones of the sort of thing that happened between him and Smith and indeed also Mailer and Abbott. But at the same time, by that point, people had stopped talking about Edgar Smith a lot. And it, it wouldn't really pick up until 89 when the LA Times pieces came out and Edgar was up for parole. And that's when the correspondence, pri the private correspondence between Bill and Sophie also picks up. So I also, I mean, he was great at putting things out of his mind. Yes, a, a, a master compartmentalizer. Exactly. So if he was compartmentalizing, he may just have, I don't want to say forgotten, but just felt like, well, that's not necessarily relevant. And I'm trying to focus on this thing that I've actually been brought in to speak directly of. And obviously, we don't know if that lawyer actually asked him about Edgar Smith or not. I would love to know that. Because Ugh. if that did happen, it also changes the way that that quote even works. Yeah, I would be surprised if if Edgar Smith came up in that testimony that Malcolm would have wouldn't have figured out that it was a really <laughs> a really <laughs> psychologically rich vein to to go down. Which is also why when I would reread The Journalist and the Murderer while working on this book, I felt like it spoke to me as chronicling what happened to Buckley and Smith without actually outright saying so and that I feel like a lot of people miss that the way I interpret what Malcolm was doing is that she was trying to make a more universal case, that it wasn't just about the specifics of McGinnis and McDonald per se. It's about, well, you could sub in any journalist murderer permutation combination of your choice, and the same would still apply. 
Well, Sarah, what did you make of Sam's claim in his review of your book that he kind of preferred to reading all this as a love story? And I was particularly thinking about that, given that with Wilkins, she wrote a letter to Buckley where she describes this obsessive end, her entangled desire for a son, a lover, in a book. And so I think with Sophie, it's more clear kind of what some of the dynamics might have been. But what was Buckley's attraction to this person? Why was he so drawn in? I wonder if there was some degree of Pygmalion-Galatea dynamic happening, this idea that Edgar was on a path of self-improvement, but a friendship with Buckley would spur him to even greater Mm. heights. And certainly, as we know, Buckley mentored so many young men. Yes. I mean, I guess in a way, it was like a flip side of Gary Wills. Gary... Obviously, I mean, he was very attached to Buckley and then famously broke with him. And I think at least from reading his work and even the very small amounts of correspondence that I had with him while I was working on the book, that he was still grappling with things related to Buckley and always would. Yeah, I think that's so key. I think Sam Tenenhaus has talked about this, too. It's just this kind of dynamic that Buckley developed with a series of sort of protégés or young young men who it was a little bit of a Pygmalion-Galatea relationship, a sort of kind of, I'll make you in my image. And the, to the extent that you maintain my image, I will be flattered by you, which is so, so transparent in the relationship where Smith was literally aping his literary style in order to seduce him. But I do really think that you're, you're onto it, which is that there was a pattern of relationships that either continued as sort of these deeply emotionally invested friendships or that ended in some kind of betrayal that was really painful for usually both sides that was a pattern in in Buckley's life just over and over again. And uh, the relationship with Smith sort of had those hallmarks, even if it it ended in the most tragic way possible. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, Sarah, there was a moment when Smith was still in jail, when they were trying to figure out, you know, how Buckley and he could actually correspond. And Smith joked that maybe Buckley should adopt him. (laughs) (laughs) which I think speaks to what we've just been describing, you know, that sort of mentor, but more than that relationship. The teacher-student lover dynamic. Exactly. Just the edging towards inappropriateness there as well. I can't remember if I cited it, but an essay I thought a lot about was one that Alex Chi wrote about being a cater waiter at the Buckley's and Mm -hmm. what he witnessed and what it was like for him as someone who was a activist in the AIDS movement and gay and very much the type of person who Buckley would have scorned being in the house all the time working. Just the things that he does with that essay are phenomenal. And I try to reread that every so often. And then I think another one that Ross Doutthat wrote for The Atlantic in the immediate aftermath of Buckley's death about the afternoon that he spent sailing with Buckley and a couple of other people. Well, more than sailing. (laughs) (laughs) They went skinny dipping. That was in Ross's memoir, but I think you're right. It might have been published as an excerpt in The Atlantic. Um, And of course, that's how Alex's essay too, which I agree is just a, it's just a phenomenal essay. I mean, whatever else you make of it, just kind of sociologically. But, you know, it ends with Pat Buckley sort of making a pass at Alex as Buckley skinny dipping with one of the other young caterers out in the pool out back. All these things 
are in the mix. <laughs> <laughs> well, this conversation has been everything that I hoped that it would be and more. This was so much fun. Yeah, Sarah, you've been really wonderful. And listeners will link to Sam's re- great review in the New Republic in the show notes. But I just really want to say again how wonderful a book, Scoundrel, how a convicted murderer persuaded the women who loved him, the conservative establishment, and the courts to set him free. Sarah Weinman, it was really an amazing book to read. And thank you so much for all the work you did to write it. Thank you both so much. It was truly a pleasure to talk to you today. Likewise. Thanks. Three.